off top. So I have on a necktie right now. And according to Wikipedia, the origins of the necktie come from Croatian mercenaries. Play the music. This is the Dominique Foxworth Show. Doopy 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 doopy. What up, Charlie? How are we doing? I'm still, I'm, I'm high energy right now, man. I just got off a of first take giving Mad Dog the business as I normally do. It was a lot of fun cooking him up. So I'm ready to continue cooking. I'm in an adversarial mood. I'm sorry if you are going to be on the wrong side of these hot takes. No, man, I, I see you. You're wearing a salmon jacket and a tie. And I immediately think um, I'm ready to fight. I'm ready to go. <laughs> well, if anyone wants to see this flyness, they can come on YouTube right now uh, and check it out. Apparently, we're doing really well. Shout out to Christina Buswell, Addy Khan, and Sarah Abbott, and you, Charlie, for making this show awesome. So thank you all for supporting it. And it's still getting better. All right. Give me something to fight, Charlie. All right. So what I want to do today, I want to talk a little bit of football, a little bit of basketball. I want to roll through the Dolphins Bengals game, the Bills Ravens game, because I think those are the two standout football games. And I want to talk about something we don't have common ground on, which is Kevin Durant and the Nets. But we'll get there. <sighs> the way I want to format this today is a game that I call press coverage. I mean, you weren't the most <laughs> physical guy. Press coverage is always going to be tough. For, was always tough for you. But we'll start with this. And this, this, I'm going to give you real media storylines. Things I looked up and researched online. Yeah, credit to me for doing some homework. Nice. And you're going to tell me if the real headline or storyline or narrative is legit or what the narrative should be. All right. Um, I looked up Dolphins Bengals. The thing that popped up were a lot of people saying, whoa, look at this betting line. Why are the Bengals four-point favorites? The Dolphins, according to the ringer, are among a new group of Super Bowl contenders. But that doesn't seem to be the storyline. The storyline seems to be Joe Burrow back on track. Mike McDaniel <laughs> saying, "Joe, when I see Joe Burrow, I see swag. Can you tell me, <laughs> is Joe Burrow the real storyline of this game or should it be the Dolphins or should it be something else? I mean, I think it should be the Dolphins. It's the line seems obvious to me. Like there's questions around Tua's health. Like I'm not surprised by the line. Anyone who's shocked by that line, like I get it because the Dolphins are like the hottest team in football right now. They won the big game against the juggernaut that was the Bills, but they're on a short week and they their offense or their defense played almost 100 snaps in damn near 100 degree temperatures. And they're on a short week playing on Thursday and their quarterback had wobbly knees after getting hit. So the four point line is understandable. But I mean, the Joe Burrows back is a huge question to me because it seems to me that we had this argument earlier or this conversation earlier. I don't get how Joe Burrow is ineffective against cover two. Yeah. And so that's that's still a thing that's out there. And so it's it's covered too. It's not a new, innovative, exceptional, special, challenging, confusing coverage. It's the second one they came up with. But Joe so Burrow why, and why but explain this to me. Like we had six weeks of saying Patrick Mahomes uh, struggled against cover two last year. How does this keep happening to these guys? Yeah, I, the the Patrick Mahomes thing, I think it was like too high, which can be cover two, can be cover six, can be cover four. Cover two is a specific version of too high. You can have two Tampa two, which is really like a cover three with the middle linebacker taking that deep third. But anyway, cover two is an effective pass coverage and taking away deep shots. And it's generally just an effective coverage. 
but there are holes in it. It's a zone and you can overload it. You can outnumber them. Like the only reason why cover two, I think, should work against teams is if they are not anticipating it. Like there are plenty of cover two beaters. Like on, on if you do some sort of rollout to the sideline and do a levels route, like simple stuff that's day one football should work against cover two. If you want to want to run quick game like slants, the corners are in outside leverage. The slant to the number two guy should be open. So there are ways to beat cover two. And let alone the fact that if they are the opponents in cover two and you can't run the ball against cover two, something's wrong with you. Like you have a numbers advantage and you have a quarterback who's capable of doing like a read option, which gives you a, another numbers advantage. So not being able to run against cover two and not being able to beat cover two are like, they don't make sense to me. It's impossible. And so like on third down, if it's third and nine and the team is in cover two, I understand it's hard to beat that because the challenging of one of the ways you can challenge cover two is use underneath guys to pull the zones down. But if they don't have to respect that, then I get it um, or overload their zone. So I'm getting way into X's too much into the X's and O's than I want to be. But the point is that the Joe Burrow's back narrative is a bit faulty if that's actually out there because they beat the Jets, which are a better team. But the questions are still there about being able to protect Joe Burrow and being able to beat cover two. Well, so the question I have about that is, if you think that cover two is so beatable, shouldn't this be an obvious regression candidate where Joe Burrow does figure it out like ASAP? I mean, they have T Higgins, they have Jamar Chase, they, they have legitimately two number one receivers. Mixon hasn't been able to run the ball at all, but you you assume that's coming. Well, it would be if they could figure it out. If you can't run the ball against cover two, like there's there's no scheme. I mean, there's no adjustment you can make. You got a numbers advantage. Win, break a tackle, make all your blocks. There's no no adjusting or addressing that. And again, cover two is more of a pass coverage, so it's going to happen in later down. So they presumably they're not struggling to run the ball against cover two on first down because teams are not running a lot of cover two on first down would be my guess. I haven't looked at what the Bengals face normally, but that'd be my guess. So we'll throw the running out. If you can't beat cover two yet, like if I feel like if you go into a game normally, and this, I think people will find this interesting is you as a um, offense, first 15 plays are scripted. That's pretty much a recon mission. You're doing motions, shifts, you're doing, and not every team does this, but like I think Bill Walsh started doing it and his coaching tree is like the predecessor to the Shanahan thing. And it's like the, the foundation for a lot of the offense in NFL right now. So first 15 scripted, you use a recon mission. You do motions, you do shifts, you show certain formations, you show for certain personnel to see what the defense is going to do. And on third down, you're like, all right, this is their third down play. They're going to run their best third down play on the first third down, the one that they think is going to give you guys trouble. They're going to do it for all the third downs in the first half and all the first and second downs in the first 15 and in the first quarter in the first half. They're going to the defense is going to show you what they what their plan is. At that point, the offense can try to adjust, but the real adjustments come at halftime. So my I go into this big spiel to explain that if someone was giving Joe Burrow fits in cover two, in the first half and they didn't address it in the second half. I don't know why three weeks later, they're going to figure it out and learn how to beat it. You know? So it's a question about Zach Taylor and there were questions floating around his job security and his effectiveness before last season started. And all those questions went away because they made a Super Bowl run that we've chronicled on here many times was incredibly impressive, but also like not 
based necessarily on outstanding coaching or execution. Like they they uh, squeak by the Raiders, who are 0-3 now. Uh, they played the Titans, a uh, weakish number one seed, and got sacked nine times and probably should have lost that game but won. And then Patrick Mahomes just fell apart right at halftime in the next game. And uh, towards from halftime on, he fell apart. They found themselves in the Super Bowl where they played pretty well. And I think that it's more likely to say that they were last year's regular season team than they are the team that made it to the Super Bowl last year, which is why I kind of feel like now we're seeing who they are. And it's about Zach Taylor. It's not about Joe Burrow. It's not about the talent. It's about Zach Taylor. It's about that offensive line. But the defense is playing well, which is reason why they're hanging around. And maybe that'll give them time to figure out everything else. Yeah. And honestly, uh, the Dolphins through three games are a bottom 10 unit in coverage. So this should be top 10 unit against the run. So tough, tough yeah. for them establishing run, but better for them figuring out some of their short <laughs> intermediate passing to game. Me. Yeah. That's surprising to me that they're, they're low in coverage because they have a lot of talent in secondary. And I guess they, they make really big plays at key moments and they give a big plays because they're an aggressive team. I think they run more zero blitzes, which are all out blitzes, yeah. man-man coverage with no self safety help, more blitzes than anybody. So I think that will skew the coverage numbers, but they give defensive fits. I wonder I, I also like now. I should I should I should mention here, I'm gonna cut my legs out from under me on this point. They they did play Josh Allen and Lamar Jackson in two of their three games to start the season, which probably affects those coverage numbers a little bit. Yeah. I'm going to look up their efficiency defensively because I feel like that should take into account all of those things and should give us a better understanding for how good their defense is. While you're looking this up, I do want to I want to pivot a tiny bit to the to the Dolphins as well, because I I have a question about the narrative surrounding them, because I don't I'm I'm sorry. I know we're a Dolphins podcast. I'm sorry, Dolphins Nation. I'm sorry, on, But I have some questions. They're now being included in a group of like stealth and new crop of Super Bowl contenders. But a lot of that has to do with this seemingly explosive, except for in that one quarter against the Ravens. Am yeah, I wrong I mean, to think that this is where we've sort of overrated their offense so far? No, you're not wrong at all. I mean, I, maybe it was Mina's podcast where I was talking about this or debatable. I completely agree with you is their offense is not, with exception of that fourth quarter uh, against the Ravens, this offense is not incredibly explosive. But the important thing to understand, I think, with them is they're making important plays that don't feel lucky at mm-hmm. key moments. And that's what you need. They're playing, which, uh, yeah, their offensive efficiency is 18th in the league. So, yeah, their defense is not even as good as I thought it was. But they're playing. Burrow is making, not Burrow, um, Tua is making the passes. So I, I went through this this morning on Get Up, and I picked out one play from each game that's like an exceptional play that not every quarterback can make. And so in the first game is that fourth and seven before halftime, they hit Tua or Tua hit Waddle on um, a perfect pass in the middle field and Waddle took it to the crib in part because Tua anticipated and was incredibly accurate. Waddle didn't have to adjust at all. He caught it in stride. If you didn't see the ball come, you wouldn't think that you wouldn't think that he even caught it. And uh, in the second game, he had those busted coverages that he beat. I'm not going to give him a ton of credit for that, but he got under pressure with the game on the line. He scrambled left and then threw a perfect pass to Waddle that was just high enough to get over the hands of the linebacker and didn't lead Waddle into the safety on the other side. And that was the pass to give them the lead that ended up winning the game. And then third and 22 against the Bills, uh, against cover two, he used his eyes 
and Tyreek Hill, frankly, to move the left safety over and then turn back right and hit Waddle on a post between two safeties on a perfect pass. Again, all these are to Waddle, and Waddle didn't have to adjust uh, to them any more than uh, any receiver would with a well-thrown ball. So that's what it comes down to is they're in these positions, and in those pivotal moments, you need a quarterback that can make those plays, and Tua's been doing it. So they're not really dominant at anything, which is kind of surprising to me. I wonder what their defensive numbers were before the uh bills game because the bills put up a lot of yards but 500 plus yards which i guess could infect that efficiency but they didn't score a ton of points yeah they were 15th before that game so yeah i, I really thought their defense was better uh on these efficiency numbers but we live and we learn all right we're done with this game or well, those teams i just have one question one one final question which is just basically we talked around it a little bit do you think the Bengals are going to win this game is that sort of where you're leaning at this point? Yeah, I, I think I'm kind of leaning there, but we're a Dolphins pod, so I can't. We are we're officially a Dolphins pod, so I think that the Dolphins are going to win every game. I don't know if I'm betting on this one, but <laughs> you're asking a lot of that defense to to come off of that short week and then chase around Chase and Higgins and Mixon, and you don't know what Burrow you're going to get. Uh, so yeah. Let's say that as fans, we believe in the Dolphins because we're Dolphins, but as gamblers, eh, not so fast. Total stay away. This is definitely the overreaction game of the week because people are dying to re-put Burrow as a top five quarterback and crush the Dolphins into it. So we'll see. We'll see. We'll come back to this one. I, I believe in you, Dolphins, as well. Dolphins, we are the Dolphins. Um, okay, second game. This is probably the actual best game of the weekend, and it's Ravens-Bills. And... The storyline that I have seen out there is really about Lamar Jackson. He's now second in the MVP odds behind Josh Allen, and he's playing a Bills secondary that's decimated inside Xavier Rhodes. And I think this is a really interesting storyline because the Bills defense has been really good this year despite the injuries. And you see Lamar versus the Bills defense as the storyline where he's going to light it up and he's going to, we're going to do the market correction where we evaluate Lamar Jackson properly and we view the Ravens as Super Bowl contenders. Is that the narrative for this game? That's that's not the narrative in my house. The narrative in my house is I'm disappointed and proud of my son at the same time. As someone called and offered us tickets to this game and he has a game at the same time. And I'm proud that he wants to play in his mm-hmm. game. But I'm like, come on. And it's five football. We can take a week off. Let's go. Let's go see Jackson versus Allen. He's like, no. And my Can't team, run for the grind. I have to play it to play in my game with my team. It's like, what? I mean, I don't want to encourage you to leave your team in a lurch. However, they got other players and they'll be good. Let's take a let's take a week to go watch some. I didn't want to say this, but like. Uh, some good football and not watch nine-year-old flag football. But that's what we're doing. We're, I'm going to watch nine-year-old flag football, and I'm going to have to watch a recorded version of Lamar versus Josh Allen. But, yeah, I, I think the real question is the left tackle situation in Baltimore is how are they going to address that? Uh, they did better with it in the second half of last week's game. However, Von Miller was not at that game, and generally that – um Bill's defense and defensive line has been really impressive. And that's going to be the question. If they can do something to address, because it's different with Lamar, because mm-hmm. I, I would say with any other quarterback, like if they could protect him in the pocket, 
that'd be the question. But with Lamar and the Ravens, it's like, can they address that deficiency? Because they don't have to drop him back, even though he's been really incredible in the pocket this year, passing from the pocket this year. They don't have to do that. They can find other ways to compensate for the fact that they're, they got a third string left tackle uh, going up against one of the better pass rushing D lines in the league. So I think that's, it's not the sexy conversation of Lamar versus Allen, who's the better player, but I think that will be the story of the game because if they can, if they can get pressure on Lamar uh, while staying in zones, which would try to take away the middle of the field where Lamar likes to work with um, Andrews uh, and the tight ends and be able to have extra guys to help out on DuVernay and uh, sorry, DuVernay and um, on DuVernay and Bateman. I think that would be nice in the zone to be able to have eyes on Lamar to scramble. Like I think that all really matters and would help to neutralize Lamar as much as you can possibly neutralize Lamar. I think you're. I think I'm gonna get it, be getting at the same point, but I want to ask you. Like, I would. Wow, I lost my voice there for a second. I would not be surprised if Lamar Jackson struggled in that game. Am I wrong to think that the Bills are leading the league, just averaging? Uh, their defense is only allowing 214 yards per game. Uh, right. 65.3 passer rating, which is first. Uh, they've yeah. surrendered just two passing touchdowns. They gave fits to Matthew Stafford, and I think there's a really indicative number in that Tyree Kill had 33 receiving yards last week. And the reason I think that's indicative is obviously Lamar wants to drive the ball downfield. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised, but they do have a ton of injuries Mm -hmm. um, on their defensive side of the ball. Uh, I think also, like, the fact that the Ravens are not a team that is built to attack a team with bad corners, which is, like, the weakness of the Bills. So, like, I agree with you. The Bills could give the Ravens some trouble. But the hard thing with that is Lamar's just special. There's guys like that that are just special that can just take over a game just when it's time to take over a game. So I think this team is constructed to give them trouble if they're able to score early, the Bills score early, get a big enough lead that has to like, that'll neutralize some of Lamar's running game, which is a way to address their left, left tackle deficiency is quarterback design runs. And if they can do that, put them in a position where Lamar has to pass from the pocket and they're in those zones, which Lamar's been great at this year. That's not an, uh, that doesn't mean that he can't do it, but it's, uh, it's making them one dimensional and they can get pressure on him without blitzing. Yeah. I think that could be a recipe for trouble for Lamar Jackson. I mean, it's really interesting to me, like, the the one of the things I found really fascinating about this game is how good Lamar Jackson is with pre snap with pre snap motion. I was reading about this and how he's been like leading the NFL and that's been one of the uh, dominant factors. But I was like, ooh, I wonder how good the Bills are against pre snap motion. It's going to be a fact. They're the first ranked defense in stopping <laughs> in stopping plays with that. So like to me, it's yeah. it's weird. Like football is all about matchups. We know Lamar is a superstar of all superstars, but this just feels like a terrible matchup for him. Um, it's it's a tough matchup in part because the offense is the opposing offense is really good and the Ravens play best with the lead, which I mean, everyone probably plays best with the lead, but allowing them to be two dimensional or almost three dimensional in the quarterback running game, the running back running game, because the quarterback running game is more effective than the running back running game. You put all that together with his ability to pass from the pocket like that. 
once you start taking those pieces away, it, it makes them easier to defend. And I, I think the Bills have the personnel when healthy to stop him. But then it always comes down to like we saw this in the Chiefs game and that I had this conversation with the with a few people like do the bill or do the chiefs miss Tyree kill? The answer is hell. Yes. Do they need Tyree kill? No. But in this most recent game, at some point in that game, Tyree kill would have made a play that fixed all of their errors. And that's a Lamar Jackson, <laughs> you know? So like they could stop him or put them in bad situations and he could break a tackle and go to the crib. So, and nobody else has a quarterback that can do that. It's just, I mean, Josh Allen is the closest to it, but I don't see him making these runs like Lamar did against Miami. It's just running away from one of the best corners in football, just outrunning a 4-3 guy. So that's the thing. That's uh, Betting against Lamar Jackson is uncomfortable, you know, because <laughs> you could be right about your analysis, but he could break it. Betting for him is fine. I don't know that I would on this game, but like betting for him is – Gives you a little hope because even when things aren't going well, you're just like, hey, he might just pop one of this thing and be better than everybody on the field. But uh, there's no scheme for having the best athlete touch the ball every single play. Yeah. I mean, I guess the the scheme for it is just the thing that we've t- we've talked about with Lamar for years, which is he's playing Josh Allen. And what if Josh Allen goes up by two touchdowns? Because you look at last week and I think we were all surprised the Bills didn't win that game with the, with the amount of yards yep. that they accrued over it. All right. And I just think regression, would you be shocked if they're up by 10 points at some point? And we actually get to see Lamar Jackson in the leverage situation that we've sort of pined for him to be better in for the last three years. Yeah, I mean, he's been better in that situation, too. And certain times, like the last Ravens game I went to uh, with my son was the Chiefs game. He came back from down in mm-hmm. that game is in part because of uh mistakes by the Chiefs, but he did come back from from down several points. And the reason why people were critical of him is his passing from the pocket and must throw downs. And he's done that well this year. So I'd love to see him in that situation again. I'd love for him to triumph in that situation. But there's certainly going to be a stupid storyline after this game if he loses about how he's this is why you don't build a team around Lamar Jackson, which is unfair because every other quarterback in the league loses and every other quarterback in the league struggles to win in late game situations, but none of them have been in, or very few of them that are as young as Lamar Jackson has, have been in as many big high profile uh, games that, that shape our narrative. And also some people just have confirmation bias and hate Lamar Jackson and want to hate him no matter what, like that anonymous GM that said, if he won 12 MVPs, he would never consider him a number one quarterback. <sighs> you don't remember that? Google it. No, make you angry. no. Yeah, I think it was might have been connected to to Jeremy Fowler was doing like a preseason quarterback rankings and Lamar was like 11th. And one of the quotes from an anonymous defensive coordinator was, I don't care. He's not a quarterback. He's a good football player. I don't care if he wins 12 MVPs. He'll never be a number one quarterback to me. Okay, you're just racist. Yeah, a little dog whistling. (laughs) Or, or, Or Lamar Jackson. I don't know, beat you up or something, and you're just upset. But anyway, all right, we're good with that game, right? Yeah, we're good. All right, no, I'm I'm great with it. I mean, I'm 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 with you. I'm predicting I'm predicting the storyline is going to be basically, uh, holy bleep, that Bills Dolphins game was such a fluke. This Bills team's incredible. Why did yeah. we? Why are we surprised after one week? Because like this is yeah. one of those things where we're like when you when you zoom out on the Bills from last week, 
they're actually healthier on defense than they were the week before. And, you know, Josh Allen's a freak of nature. I'm sorry, Lamar. I still love you. Now let's talk about the play of the week. The pressure to follow up Hypnotic and Cognac weighing heavy on the team. Hypnotic was in the cup, blue and ready for the play. And boom, on Yeho Tequila came in with a smooth assist to Hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. Shaken, strained, poured. It was green and good. The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the Hypnotic team. Every season is Hypnotic and Tequila season. Hypnotic liqueur. Barnstown, Kentucky, 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. I do, you do, we all do, big, small. And when we keep them bottled up, as I sometimes have had happen in the past, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash df today to get 10% off your first month that's betterhelp help.com slash df this podcast is proud to be supported by jets pizza the number one pick in detroit style pizza why it's simple jets is better with the thickest crispiest cheesiest detroit style pizza in the country there's no competition right now get five dollars off any eight corner pizza with code eight save that's the number eight S-A-V-E. Go to jetspizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jets' signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza. Better because it has to be. We all know breakfast is an important part of your day. But sometimes when you're traveling for business, you end up staying at a hotel that doesn't offer any. You know what happens? You grab a cup of coffee and skip the meal entirely. We've all been there. But if you book a room at La Quinta by Wyndham, you can enjoy their free bright side breakfast featuring delicious baked goods, fruit, eggs, yogurt, and waffles. And really, who doesn't want to start their day with a fresh, hot waffle? Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book direct at LQ.com. Should we move on to the, to the topic that I think we really want to talk about? We're going to pivot yeah. away from football for a second. I love it. I can't wait to fight with you about my man, KD. Well, let's talk about the Nets because the storylines coming out of Nets media day and heading into the NBA season are really quotes from everyone on the team where you have Steve Nash saying we're a family. You put stuff behind it. You have Markeith Morris with his exact quote on Kevin Durant's trade request. (laughs) It's like breaking up with a girlfriend. You get back with her. Same, same difference until you figure it out. Can it work? Yeah. I broke up with my wife a couple of times. We still married. And you have... (laughs) Sean Mark saying he's not Kevin Durant's boss. You have uh, Kevin Durant saying, oh, I was too great to be traded. Um, and you have him saying, "I the reason I was frustrated is I committed to the organization to have, KD and, or to have uh, Kyrie and James Harden. You have, uh, you know, Sean, uh, Sean Mark saying they're going to work things out. So I think yeah. the narrative they're spinning was pretty smart, that everything is fine going into the season. Is that a narrative you believe in? Um, yeah. 
Well, I guess it depends on what you mean by fine. I think they're going to, I think it's all kind of true. It didn't feel like they were running away from anything. And that's why I am always and forever will, as you mock me for carrying Kevin Durant, Durant's water, why I, I defend him. No, you do. Well, I mean, it's fine. You call it what you, you call it, carry water, or you can call it being honest and appreciating someone else who decides to be honest. Because it's like, what do you want him to say? He didn't lie to you at any point. He was like, yeah, they couldn't trade me because I'm too awesome. Yeah, I wanted to get out of here, but I'm here now and I'm going to come here and I'm going to ball out and play as well as I can. Yeah, sometimes you are in inconvenient situations. Sometimes you're uncomfortable. But what gives you the feeling that Kevin Durant is not going to cook? Like, I think it's not going to be comfortable. So, yeah, I, it's not that it's that I, it's it's the details he left out. It's when you hear Kevin Durant talking. He made some incredibly salient points. He said, we had a great offseason. When you look at the like the broad swath of it, they did have a great offseason. They basically added Ben Simmons, who's going to be awesome for them if he plays. They added TJ Warren, who is going to be awesome for them if he plays. They built out this roster with Royce O'Neal, who can fix some defensive uh, deficiencies. Kyrie might show up. for a few Kyrie weeks. should show up, you know, voice for the voiceless. Yeah, whatever with that. Um, <laughs> but uh, the thing that I thought he was disingenuous about was his comment about why he was frustrated. And that is because this is a group that he had signed up to play with, but like he chose this, he supported Kyrie. He brought him in and it's like, what do you want the organization to do? He chose Kyrie over James Harden. James Harden's not there because Kevin Durant took Kyrie's side. Like it's just a skirting of responsibility that this is a team that he was, you know, part of constructing whether he wants to admit it or not. And he bears some responsibility for, for the results and the frustration that came out of that. He didn't say he doesn't bear any responsibility for it. Like it, he, I'm sure he does bear some responsibility for it. And if James Harden wanted to leave and you had to choose between those two players, based on what we saw of James Harden and what we know Kyrie Irving is capable of, he made the right choice. What we saw of Kyrie Irving. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Kyrie Irving, Kyrie Irving didn't play much. He hadn't played at that point. I don't know, but I'm saying when Kyrie Irving is back, he's going to be a better basketball player than the version of James Harden that we saw. So like that, if you have to choose, I would, I think it's reasonable to say the choice you're making is we have this guy that when he plays, he's great. He may not play. So high risk move there. We have this guy that when he plays, he's not great, but he's going to show up. I'm here to win championships. Give me the high variance guy that may or may not show up. If we can get him to show up, he'll be good. Because getting James Harden to show up last year for the 76ers, it did nothing for their championship standings. So, like, I think that... But he lost 100 pounds now. Okay, here we go with best shape of my life season. Yeah, whatever. Because James Harden's uh, quickness and explosiveness is he's the problem. best shape he's been in in five years. Okay, cool. So, like, that's my point. He didn't make this bed all by himself and I'm fine with putting some responsibility on him, but Sean Marks gets paid too. like he gets paid to do an actual job. And this generally frustrates me when we listen to people talk about LeBron a lot and these super powerful basketball players. And when the roster is a mess, we and they are obviously a part of making these decisions. We want to blame them only and not to blame the person whose job it is to build the roster, the general manager. And I, I don't appreciate that. It's just it feels unfair. Well, it's not, it's one Durant's exact quote was, first of all, I never walk into any GM office, coach office and demand anything, tell them to sign anybody or run a play for me. I come in and do my job as a player. A lot of people have it in their minds that I control everything here with the Nets. I'm not the liaison between Kyrie and the organization. 
I always told them that. I told Sean and Kyrie, y'all got to build y'all relationship. Everybody's different. I I believe that to an extent, but like, where's the lie? To, to imagine that he's just a player and not a power broker with this organization, I don't believe that, and I don't absolve oh, yeah, no. Sean Marks with it with it. But I also think that he capitulated to what he thought KD wanted, whether or not he explicitly said it. And I think that he probably had good intel of the things that KD did did want, and that that framed a lot of the decisions. That's fine. I'm willing to accept all that. And KD maybe being a little bit disingenuous because I'm sure that through intermediaries or whatever, like it, it was not a secret uh, what he wanted. That's fine. But I guess the general larger point to me is it feels like, and it's rooted in like my general player bias. So call me out if I'm just being biased. But if something is your job or it is your responsibility to get something done, it's like, I feel like when I have to be somewhere on time, with my kids. Mm-hmm. If I'm not there on time, I can say, oh, but my son started flipping out. Or, oh, my daughter needed her hair done at the last second. I can say all those things and they could be true. But the fact of the matter is it was my job to get them there on time. That is my responsibility. And that's what I feel like the GMs like, and they're not doing this necessarily, but so many people in the media are like, but LeBron or Kevin Durant made them do it. No, your job as a GM is to build whatever relationships you have to build, to be able to sell them the plan that you want to run. Like that's that's part of your job. The being a modern NBA G- GM is different than it was in the past. You can't be like Jerry Krause back in the day and just tell people what you're going to do and move them around. In part, you can't be that way because you decided as a league to put in salary cap maxes and salary caps. Like it's a lot. You have a lot more leverage when somebody can't go somewhere else to get the amount of money that you that they actually deserve. So like that's my point. Yes, the job has changed. Maybe it's harder for GMs today than it was for them in the past. That's fine. But you don't get to point to Kevin Durant or get to point to LeBron James and say, we suck because they made me do it. Well, figure out a way to do your job or leave. They're getting like five, $10 million a year to do a job. Do it. And that's, uh, and whatever criticism you have of Kevin Durant's influence on the roster, it's fair. Kevin Durant could take that criticism, but it's not his job to build a roster. And and I'm not sure what mistakes he's made up until this point because we don't know exactly what influence he's had. But the word leaked that he wanted to coach out and he wanted uh, um, it's like that sucks. GM and coach. Yeah, anyone. And he wanted marks out and that sucks and that's terrible. But like Durant deserves some responsibility for that. But so do the coach and the GM. That's all I'm saying is we don't hear that part. It's just so much piling on Kevin Durant and guys like that. And it frustrates me. Well, definitely. I think that's I I I'm here for the equitable division of blame when it comes to the Nets. And I like I, I don't think it's completely good. Kevin Durant is awesome. Yeah. Other than other than injuries, he's maintained being a top 10 player in the NBA through 16 seasons. Um, that is not really up for debate as much as as much as he frustrates me. But even the way he just demanded out from the situation does bother me, too, because he's like. I don't know. Doesn't it just doesn't it feel I know, like so I'm arguing with you, but I'm really arguing with a lot of people out there. So like I don't want this to be framed as you are a big anti-player guy, but um I think he does deserve some blame for it and he's getting it. Like I feel like that's the problem, is I feel like he's getting as much or more blame than he deserves while everyone else is skating. Everyone else in this in, in this situation is like what are you talking about? Steve Nash. 
You don't think people are sympathetic to everyone's Steve Nash? called Steve Nash a joke. I th- I can I can yeah. hear you saying that everyone has been empathetic to Sean Marks, but Steve yeah. Nash, who we have no idea if he's a good coach or a bad coach, because uh, James Harden got out of shape. Uh, Kyrie Irving didn't play. Kevin Durant hurt his MCL. Ben Simmons didn't play. Like we have no idea either way. We decided he's a terrible coach, and Durant turned on him and wanted him fired. That's fair. That's fair. Maybe Steve Nash is catching some uh, of the heat that he's supposed to catch for this situation. I feel like part of this is also like people saying, what is Steve Nash supposed to do in this situation? Kyrie Irving is crazy and Kevin Durant is bullying him and uh, and uh, James Harden forced his way out. Like that's out there, too, which is like, well, that's his job. That's like your job to figure out how this is supposed to work. And it's fine to criticize him for not doing that part of the job right. Well, and the same thing for Sean Marks. It's like he's not getting the criticism that um, Kevin Durant is getting. And I'm fine with not criticizing anybody in this situation. But just ganging up on the player to me feels wrong when his job is to play basketball really well. He's been doing it ever since he came back from the injury. He's been doing it. He was a toenail from knocking off the champs a couple years ago. This is one of the things that I sort of disagree with you on. The, the superstar's job in basketball when you breathe the air of Kevin Durant is not just to play basketball really well. It's to make your team in title contention. And he got zero blame for it th- two years ago when they lost to the Bucs and his toe was over the line because people were like, holy shit, Kevin Durant has reached a level that is beyond belief. And I think it actually, you know, might have been one of the most advent or one of the most beneficial second round losses to a career narrative that we've ever seen. Like it, it's because you because you have eyeballs and you saw that. But like, okay, that's fair. When you're listless against the Boston Celtics and get swept in the first round and you're calling yourself one of the 10 best players of all time, you know, I also think it's fair for fans, media members to be like, hey, you're Kevin Durant. I expect uh, your teams to be better because you're Kevin Durant and wins are a superstar stat in the NBA. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I think that the job of the GM has changed and the job of the superstar has changed. And Kevin Durant, uh, it does not appeal. It does not appear has the same ability that uh, I guess you used to have. Yeah. I mean, it's not even his basketball playing ability. That's that I'm concerned about as much as it's like this roster construction thing that it seems like is now the responsibility of players in the way that it wasn't in the past where it was like you get drafted to a team. You play at that team, and if you don't win a championship, we don't blame the GM. We're just like, you weren't good enough to bring this team to the top. Now we're in an era where it's like you aren't good enough or charismatic enough to find the right roster to make yourself a championship contender every single year, which is kind of unfair because he did it. He went to the best possible situation ever and won NBA MVP and a couple of titles in Golden State. So people just hate Kevin Durant. And that's where they start with their analysis of Kevin Durant mm-hmm. is the fact that they don't like him because he ruined basketball by going to Golden State when he had the opportunity. I mean, yeah, sort of. That is sort of, that is sort of part from the fan perspective. <laughs> yeah. And I, I'm not here for it. I, I'm not going to let y'all hate on a man because he took an easier job than he had before because all y'all would do the same thing. Good for him. He didn't ruin basketball for me. No, we're allowed, awesome. we're allowed to be frustrated about it. And the reason we're allowed to be frustrated about it is it's an entertainment product for us. And he made it less entertaining. His for you? Entertaining. Yeah. yeah. The, it was, there was so much less uh, sort of. Uh, Mystery? Res- in, intrigue. Yeah. As, as of, um, in the whole thing. 
But I, that's, that's not his fault. That's the fact that it's 82 games. There's less in- intrigue and that their seven game series in the playoffs reduces the intrigue. All that stuff reduces the intrigue. Also, Kevin Durant going to a 72 win team does reduce the intrigue. I mean, after the intrigue is like, how good are they going to be? And then once yeah. we realize they're going to be unbeatable, freaking incredible, then there's really no. I think the most basketball games in like since I've been an adult, like when I was a kid, I watched like everything that could come on TV, but we didn't have much access back then. But the most basketball I've watched is as an adult is when the first year LeBron went to Miami. Mm-hmm. And that was because. And maybe this is I'm exploring or I'm discovering something about myself is I don't like when y'all gang up on people because that's when I became a LeBron James fan because everyone's like piling on LeBron for the decision. And I hated it. And I wanted him to destroy everyone. And I watched every game that came on and I was so disappointed when they lost in uh, the finals. And I feel that same thing happening to me around Kevin Durant because y'all hate him. And I just want him to cook everybody all season. Well, Bron thing was so different. It was so much more vitriol immediately. And it yeah. dissipated over time because of our eyeballs. We saw him elevate to a different level that relieved all the pressure around it. And that's what we wanted for Kevin Durant in Brooklyn too, for the record. And that's what we saw in, uh, in, you know, 2020. But like the big thing that, that, that frustrates me with, with Durant right now is it also doesn't even part of the narrative around this is it doesn't even feel like his, you know, frustrations are a hundred percent to do with the nets. It feels narrative wise, like what happened with Golden State with them winning the title without him and how he fit into that puzzle and devout in his own. Like he talks so much online about how legacy doesn't matter. He doesn't care. Or he's really just trolling people when they talk about that stuff. But like it's so hard to take that seriously when his behavior lines up with someone who's really frustrated because his place in history seems to be diminished by the success of Steph Curry and the Warriors. Yeah. I mean, he obviously does care about that. Yeah. Um, Uh. And that sucks. I wish he didn't care. But I don't think that you can be a guy who's as skilled as he is and also not care about those things. Yeah. Like the, the, the little um, wrinkle in his brain that causes him to work on his game to the degree that he can be seven foot and so skilled at all these little guy things is the same wrinkle in his brain that causes him to be offended when someone comes after his standing in the game. So I think we've come to a good place on this. We both agree Kevin Durant is an American hero and anyone who hates on him is a garbage human being. The end. Right. Last take. He's not, he's not as good anymore. We saw that in the playoffs. Of course he's not as good as anymore as, as his peak. Yeah. <laughs> That's not a hot take. He's getting older. He had injuries. You just want to hate on. You're one of them. We agreed a lot more than that. I thought we were going to agree on that. That was, that was, a, I, you know, Pat, nuanced discussion about the Nets. I don't like nuance. I told you I just got off yelling at Doggy. I just want to yell. Stephen A said that me and Doggy should do a radio show together. So um, if if Stephen A said it, it's going to happen. So get ready for me to come in this show hot all the time after ripping the dog. I was about. To, I thought you were about to put me on the hot seat with that, which is hilarious. I could be. Um, I could be the little dog. Um, <laughs> Larry Bird was yeah, definitely pro- better than Kevin Durant. The problem is you could not. You you could not work with Mad Dog. You could not be on his side. You it would it would kill you to. to um, support any of his non-fact-based opinions. I, he's incredibly entertaining, but uh, 
that comes before anything else, which is why he's so good at this. It's like he wants to be entertaining more than he wants to be right, which is better than most of us in this business, which is why he's in Hall of Fames and and Stephen A. handpicked him to come over. So me, on the other hand, I need to be right too much. So I'm going to still be over here with this. I was going to say little podcast, but this podcast is kind of dominating. Yeah, we're we're crushing it. Um, I love it. I'm rubbing off on you. Uh, you're not a cocky guy. I know. I know. I, I went from self self-deprecating to like, like exuding a bit of cockiness and arrogance over the last three weeks. So thank you. You bring out my DB. Uh, I hope the same thing is happening to the awesome team, Christina, Adi, Sarah. Thank you all. Um, see y'all next week. Bye. One piece of homework for you, Dominique. Read about the chess oh. controversy. Let's educate people next on next week's podcast. Oh, read about it. I already read about it. You're talking about the the um cheater who had the the um toy that vibrated in a place to signal to him the moves that he's supposed to be making. Yeah, I've been you you think I miss weird news? I love weird news. Uh that was like two weeks ago. I'm on top of oh, all of that now, foolishness. Now we have a we have a, a press release released of Magnus refusing to play chess against uh you know the possible cheater (laughs) all right well all right that's i'll find some other homework all right bye this is the dominique foxworth show